Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, August 23rd, 2011. Mm-mm. <laughs> I just don't even feel ready for today's edition. Oh, man. <clears throat> I think this will be the first time I'm talking about a particular topic. It takes me back to when I was... Uh, teaching adult Sunday school. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said, and as a result of it, well, we've got to... Um, well, we've got to do the biblical work. We've got to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God and get you back, get you back, get you back to the Bible in context. Mucho importante is about the best way I can put it because there's a lot of deceivers out there. There's a lot of charlatans. There are a lot of um, there's a lot of folk out there who are well, um, <clears throat> well, uh, just making stuff up to make a buck. Uh, you know, they're willing to. Uh, Offer you free access into heaven if you give them money. <laughs> now you're thinking that's kind of crass, but the reality is, is that there's all kinds of folks out there that are, um, well, doing things of that nature, hucksters, storytellers, um, people making stuff up, and there's a lot of money to be made in the, uh, in the ridiculous, in the outlandish, and you know, because here's the deal is that, um, well, we all by nature are sinners, and I think the creation itself, the scriptures make this clear, the creation itself declares that there is a God. We don't know much about the God who created the universe just by looking at the universe, except for he's powerful, creative, um, uh, and uh, if, if uh, weather events and earthquakes uh, you know, are any indicator, uh, then he's he's probably not too happy with us. So you you gotta you gotta you gotta you gotta look for something else. Where has God revealed Himself? And the answer where God has revealed Himself in Scripture, He is He has revealed Himself in history. Now, see that's what Scripture is. It's a it's a record of the history of those who have actually had real contact with the God who created the universe. And uh, there's there's some really good news in in uh, in the Bible regarding. Uh, you know, the God who created us. He explains where things went wrong, 
where he is currently, what he's done for us, and what he's going to do. Um, and along the way, we learn a lot about him. Uh, and at the same time, there's still much that we don't know about him. And uh, what we find out is that humanity suffers a, well, let's just say suffers from a bad relationship with God, not because God has done anything wrong, but because we've rebelled against him as a species. We've rebelled against him as, a, as you know, collectively as, as a group of uh, his creatures, and uh, we've sided with the devil. And God, rather than giving us all what we deserve, which is an eternity in hell, uh, plain and simple, has acted on our behalf lovingly, kindly, mercifully uh, by becoming a man, perfectly fulfilling the demands of the law for us, taking our sins upon him and atoning for our sins and propitiating the wrath of God uh, on the cross. And uh, and he's calling all men everywhere, and that you know, I'm using men here in the in the old uh, the old world sense. That also includes you women out there, um, calling men everywhere to repent and be forgiven, to be pardoned, um, because uh, Christ has acted unilaterally on our behalf, has you know literally reconciled the wrath of God uh, uh, reconciled us to himself redeemed us purchased us won us and he calls us to uh, repent and be forgiven and so there's really good news and 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 here's the other aspect of it though is is that he's returning someday in glory to judge the living and the dead there's a day coming that uh, Jesus Christ the the one true God in human flesh is going to return and and judge us all. And so here's the deal. You can either be judged based upon your righteousness or the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. Plain and simple. And so the, you know, if you want to if you want to be judged based on your righteousness, good luck. Good luck. By the way, God's not going to grade on the curve. It's not like he's going to sit there and go, "Oh, well, let's see. You, know, you come somewhere in the median of uh, as long as you're in the medium part of the bell curve of righteousness." Uh, no, because every single transgression against law, uh, God's law, earns you an eternity in hell. Every single uh, one of them. So the grade is either one hundred percent or zero. That those those are the two grades. And so if you want to stand before God in your righteousness, you, you will either uh, you if you have fully one hundred percent without ever biffing it. Uh, kept the law perfectly, well, then, you know, you don't need Jesus Christ, and you don't need salvation. You don't need to be pardoned. You don't need to be forgiven. Yeah, you just walk right in as if you own the place. Or if you're like everybody else, <clears throat> that would include all of humanity, Um, you, you need a savior. You need, you need to... Uh, you need that ultimate problem with the bad relationship that you have with God. It's not like uh, humanity doesn't have a relationship with God. Humanity does. It's just an extremely bad one. And so, anyway... The opening thoughts here. So, uh, on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, we're going to uh, we're going to listen to a little bit of video from a uh, audio from a video regarding the Nephilim. Um, there are just a lot of super de duper fanciful and bizarre uh, ideas out there regarding the so called Nephilim. We'll be listening to this uh, video and we'll be chiming in biblically. If you want to. Put your finger in the right spot uh, as far as uh, holding a place in the Bible. I would recommend opening up to Genesis. Uh, well, let's, let's take a look at chapter 5 and we'll look at part of chapter 6. And uh, take a look at this idea because 
I'm sorry, folks, but uh, this idea that the Nephilim are uh, angels who've uh, procreated with human women, yeah, that's actually not what the Scripture says. And we'll take a look at the biblical text there. Um, I, then I want to read that uh, uh, that uh, thing that I didn't get to yesterday from uh, Albert Muller. Uh, and the name of the article is False Start, the Controversy uh, Regarding Adam and Eve. So we're going to take a look at uh, Albert Muller. Again, This uh, the perennial topic coming up uh, constantly comes up about this time of the year regarding uh, Adam and Eve and, and all that kind of stuff. So we'll take a look at that. Um, Michael Horton has weighed in. Uh, he's written a blog post. Uh, he's weighed in regarding the cessationist, continuationist controversy that is currently brewing. And he's written a blog post entitled Reformed and Charismatic. Uh, Reformed and Charismatic. That's right. There's a question mark at the end of it. And uh, uh, time permitting, we're going to get to a CNN report entitled Do You Speak Christian? Do You Speak Christian? Uh, this was a. Uh, uh, a listener on my Facebook wall tipped me off to this particular CNN beliefs blog video essay that they've posted, and we'll we'll take a look at that. And then uh, for, for our sermon review in hour number two, we're going to go back to Las Vegas to uh, the Verve there, Vince Antonucci, and uh, and uh, listen to his recent sermon entitled Vervecation. Vervecation, that's the name of it. Apparently, it's about something to do with vacation. Now, the funny thing is on this one, I haven't fully listened to this sermon, so I don't know where it's going to end. From time to time, I actually make a concerted point of not listening fully to a sermon. I I, I get the gist of where it's going to go, and I think I know where it's going to go, but I'm 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 going to review it. it about halfway through is uh, about as far as I've gotten, and so I don't know where this thing is going to end. Will he pull off preaching about Christ and him crucified for our sins? Will he correctly handle God's word? Well, Vince Antonucci has like a miserable record as far as all of the sermons we've reviewed here. Um, I don't think he's yet really done even remotely close to a decent job of handling a biblical text. Um, apparently he's been to the uh, Rick Warren School of Hermeneutics. And uh, and so we'll, you, know, you never know. He might land on his feet. We'll We'll find out together. So... Uh, lots of ground to cover, lots of stuff to do here, and uh, so um, make yourself comfortable. And with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Now, normally I reserve this music for um, the Patricia King gang. Uh, however, I consider this particular audio uh, from this video to kind of fall into this category. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's right. That's right. Now, you've probably heard stories out there regarding the so-called Nephilim. What are they and what are they not? Well, let's listen to a um, a Thomas Horn interview uh, that he did a, a couple of years back on, uh, you know, it, well, anyway, listen, you'll get the, the gist of it. This is from the Prophecy in the News program. Ancient biblical prophets wrote about the future. Today, theologians are poring over those scriptures with a firm belief that their prophecies are coming to pass. I don't know any theologians who are poring over any of this stuff. If anything, they're pouring it down the drain. Journey now into the world of eschatology on Prophecy in the News with author and lecturer J.R. Church. 
We have the author of the book Nephilim Stargates, the year 2012 and the return of the Watchers. With us on today's program, his name is Tom Horn, and uh, Gary Stearman is here with me and him, and we're going to have a roundtable discussion on various aspects of this book that will, I think, fascinate you. Be sure to watch the entire program. Gary has the first question. Well, uh, Thomas Horn, author of Nephilim Stargates, has opened a number of biblical ideas to modern interpretation. We live in an era of technology. We live in an era when technology is changing on a daily level. There is an intersection between technology and what the Bible predicts for the last days. And right in the opening pages of this book, and J.R., this is fascinating, uh, Tom Horn uh, mentions a, a mission to the moon, Apollo 11. And we have uh, recorded in in abbreviated form, a conversation that took place between the astronauts of Apollo 11 and Houston. And Of course, uh, this uh, particular interview is nowhere recorded in the official transcripts of, the, uh, <clears throat> of NASA. Uh, but let's listen and let's keep going. Uh, by the way, folks, if you hear, if you, if, you, you know, if, if you watch Christian television, could I strongly urge you to stop? Um, TBN and the other so-called Christian television stations are just rife with um, bad, really bad heretical teaching. Um, TBN uh, could send you to hell. Uh, the other channels out there, God TV, it's just awful. It's horrible. Avoid this stuff like the plague. And so here we are supposedly giving serious airtime to a guy by the name of Thomas Horn who's written a book called Nephilim Stargates. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you hear Art Bell and George Norrie talking about. And this is not biblical theology, and this is not even a right handling of the biblical text. We'll get to that in a second, but let's listen in a little bit more as these... Uh, yeah, uh, by the way, tinfoil pyramid hat would go uh, would do be a good thing to put on right now to save yourself from being irradiated to death or your brain being exposed too long to the the green radiation emanating from this particular audio. Let's continue. Thomas Horn, welcome to Prophecy <laughs> in the News, and tell us about this conversation because this is fascinating. Uh, apparently, our astronauts have seen what we would call UFOs while they were on the moon. Well, this, um, this reference that you're making is in the introduction to the book. It is, uh, it is a piece of transcript that has, in some quarters, been uh, criticized as not being um, substantiated. There are other people. Otto Binder gave sworn testimony that it was true. Uh, also, the former chief of uh, NASA Communications, Maurice uh, Chatelain, gave sworn testimony that it was common knowledge mm. that the Apollo astronauts had actually saw and spoke um, uh, in their two-way transmission to NASA, which was picked up, which was blank blanked out by NASA, but was picked up by ham radio operators, uh, that there was an alien presence on the moon that was saw. There were ships that were there, that they were huge, that they were enormous. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I put this in the introduction, mm -hmm. uh, so have some other uh, researchers used this information. and. Um, so as far as it being disputed by some, I think you look at the bigger picture. 
and you realize that many presidents, Carter, uh, Reagan, others have talked about. Uh, and by the way, this is all supposedly on the program Prophecy in the News. I, yeah. um, and in fact, Reagan, before the U.N., even talked about his uh, how he sometimes questioned, you know, uh, what, how the world would come together if suddenly facing an alien presence. Now, our audience uh, would be interested in, in hearing your take on who these uh, UFOs would represent. Uh, usually, the interpretation is that they come from other planets, uh, maybe from uh, Epsilon Eridani, some exotic star in some other part of the galaxy, and, and they're here to help us out. Who, assuming that UFOs are real and assuming they've been seen by our top people, are they from other galaxies, other planets, or maybe it's something else? Yeah, well. Yeah, no. What kind of question is this, and how do you become an expert enough to answer this question? Well, I've, it, you know, my study into this area led me to conclude that if this is technology, it's technology, nuts and bolts type technology that is something entirely different than the kind of fabricating of metals and the use of fossil fuels that we're accustomed to here on Earth. Uh -huh. In addition to that, these things seem to behave sometimes more like living organisms, uh, intelligent. Uh, they seem to be able to move in and out of our reality. Uh, maybe they are 10-dimensional. Maybe they are 5-dimensional. Maybe they're 50-dimensional. I mean, maybe they're no-dimensional. Can I answer it? <sighs> Again, this is uh, from a so-called Bible prophecy program. Maybe they uh, have a known science that is something that is far surpassing uh, anything that at this point at least in our development we can even begin to comprehend yeah. but but I but I agree that even on the secular side secular researchers uh, the best of secular researchers have agreed that these things are behaving in a way that is comparable to angelology and demonology that they seem to be a kind of intelligence that may even be at war with each other certainly are using the human race when possible. Not from another galaxy, but from another dimension. From another dimension, maybe. Now, let me read what uh, you have written here on page one uh, from the transcript. Neil Armstrong reportedly mentioning, mentioned seeing, quote, strange lights, end quote, on the moon and said, we have company, before mission control switched off the live feed. And then it is said that this was picked up by ham radio operators. What's there? Mission Control calling Apollo 11. Apollo 11 said, these babies are huge, sir, enormous. You wouldn't believe it. I'm telling you, there are other spacecraft out there lined up on the far side of the crater edge. They're on the moon watching us. And, of course, there's more. You'll want to get this book. I, I can... No, I really won't. ...tell you. Just call the phone number at the bottom of your screen and order it. It's 1490... I mean, seriously, the only thing it'd be worth purchasing the book for is so that I can mulch it or put turn it into compost and put it in my yard. Five, plus shipping and handling. Call today. Order it from us with either Visa, MasterCard, American Express, or Discover Card. And get this book. It's a fascinating read, and uh, it'll help you to understand this angel, angel study in the Word of God. Angel study, really. Who are these angels, both good and evil? Gary? 
Well, JR, Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. Uh, okay, I'm going to go crazy. Okay, uh, let's listen just a little bit more. Uh, we often see UFOs, uh, according to, I guess, thousands of witnesses flitting here and there through our atmospheric heavens. Sometimes they're witnessed as uh, a light that will appear and then disappear, winking out, going to another dimension. Uh, and you're making the point in this book, Nephilim Stargates, you're saying, in effect, that maybe they're coming in and out through gates of their own making, uh, what the sci-fi people call wormholes, or uh, who knows what it could be. But Maybe they're being beamed down from the mothership that's, uh, that Elvis Presley is actually uh, the captain of now. Uh, the idea that angels may have technology is a fascinating idea. By the way, you remember the book of Enoch? Uh, um, now in the not in the Bible. Zohar, the rabbis wrote that these angels were seen going through the sky, uh, much like the birds in the opening chapter of Genesis. Mm. This Okay, <laughs> this is just crazy. Folks, uh, what gets lost when uh, this type of stuff goes on? Uh, the answer, uh, all credibility regarding the gospel itself. And the gospel itself, well, it, it gets just, you know, it gets put, a, put to the side so that we can chase after uh, angel UFOs and the Nephilim and stuff like that. Now, you, you may have heard, you know, you may know somebody. You may even be somebody who believes that uh, that that Genesis chapter six teaches that angels well procreated with human women and created the Nephilim. By the way, that's not what the text says. So let's open up our Bibles. I, I this is something that I, I I can't believe I haven't done to this point on this program, but. Uh, and this is something I covered in my uh, my Sunday school class when I used to teach adult uh, Sunday school. But uh, let's, in fact, let's go to Genesis chapter four. Now, remember our four rules for biblical interpretation. They are context, context, and context. What is the immediate context of Genesis chapter six? The answer to the question is actually the end of Genesis four. All of Genesis 5, that's the answer to the question, what is the immediate context? And that actually is what governs our proper a po proper biblical understanding of the Nephilim. It has nothing to do with stargates. It has nothing to do with angels, uh, bad angels procreating with human women. None, none of that stuff. <clears throat> In fact, uh, let, let's do this. Genesis chapter 4, verse 17 is where we're going to start. And you're going to notice in this part of the biblical narrative, what happens, okay, let's, let's kind of go through this. Genesis 1 and 2, we have the creation of the entire universe. Genesis 3, we've got the fall of man. Genesis 4, well, we get into Cain and Abel. Uh, you know, the two, the first two, uh, well, well, these are sons of Adam and Eve. Cain kills his, his brother Abel. And is in uh, there's a, there's a punishment that goes along with this, and then the narrative switches into two things. What, I mean, this is so simple. Watch this: Genesis four seventeen. Cain knew his wife. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Know what I mean? Know what I mean? Knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. 
When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, Irad the father of Mahu, Mahujael, Mahujuel fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah bore Tubal-Cain, he was the, the forger of instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Okay, so here we've got just this brief, 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 description of what goes on with the line of human beings descended from Cain, the wicked and evil Cain. Do you think the people who um, were descendants of Cain were humble and contrite sinners who believed and trusted in God for the forgiveness of their sins or believed in the promise that was given to Adam and Eve, not on your life. In fact, you'll notice that anything that's said about them, really, you know, they really excelled in the things of, well, this earth, this creation, what was going on here and now. You could almost say that they were purpose-driven, okay? Yeah, and I don't say that just flippantly. I think that's a decent description of these folks, okay? Um, so then... Okay, at the end of Genesis 4, verse 25, we have this. Adam knew his wife. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Know what I mean? Know what I mean? And his wife again, she bore a son, called him Seth. For she said, God had appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, uh, was born, and he called him Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So here we've got the descendants of Adam and Eve, and what does it say about them? Rather than them being builders of cities and people who deal with bronze and make music and all this kind of stuff, the, the distinct thing about the descendants of Adam and Eve who come through Seth is that they call on the name of the Lord. Okay? Chapter 5, the beginning of it, says this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made Adam in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Notice it says after the image of Adam, not the image of God. Adam and Eve, they, the... the <laughs> The uh, the imago day the image of God already here is broken. The, so Adam's sons and daughters are made in the image of Adam, not God. When Adam and Le uh, okay, so uh, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were eight hundred. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam uh, that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty. So then it talks about Seth. It talks about Enosh. Uh, it talks about uh, uh, you know uh, Kenan, uh, Mahalel. Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech. So it's naming it's naming all of the descendants of Adam and Eve, following a particular line. Not every descendant, but the descendants following a particular line. That particular line is the line of the Messiah. Okay, so 
put it back in its immediate context. Genesis chapter 6, the immediate context is we are getting, we are just reading about the line of two completely different groups of human beings, those who call on the name of the Lord and those descendant of uh, Cain. Uh, well, you could say that they pretty much focused on the things of this life. They were not believers, okay? So that's the setup then for Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Okay, that's what the text says. Okay, and the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore children to them, they were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Okay, now, the text does not say that angels procreated with humans. That's not what it says. It says the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Who were the sons of God? Answer, the sons of God were those who were descendants through Seth, those who were calling on the name of the Lord. They were they, they had some concept of adoption here, and they were called the sons of God. The daughters of man were those who were descendant of Cain. Now, in case you think I'm just completely speaking out of turn here, may I remind you what Jesus says regarding the angels, okay? Regarding marriage, Jesus says this in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? passage of the burning bush, how God spoke to them saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus here in talking, you know, there was a trick question that was brought to him about some woman who married a, a guy and he died and then she had to marry his brother and he died and he had to marry, she had to marry another brother and he died. And it just, it, goes, it gets to some ridiculous proportions. And the question is, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Jesus' answer is pretty clear, um, that uh, that uh, when we rise from the dead, we will neither marry or nor are we given in marriage, but instead we are like the angels in heaven. Angels don't marry. Get it? Okay? So here's the deal. You cross-reference this, this passage with Genesis chapter 6, and you have to then basically say, okay, Scripture interprets Scripture. Jesus makes it clear that angels, well, they don't marry and procreate and do things of that nature. They're spirit. They're not flesh, okay? And so the one interpretation that's completely ruled out is the idea that angels procreated with human beings. That's completely ruled out by Jesus' own discussion about the nature of, of angels, okay? And the text itself, again, put it back into its context. It's not talking about angels. It's talking, it's following the line of human beings. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. 
Okay, this is talking about intermarrying with believers and unbelievers. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. All the days, uh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now notice it doesn't say here in this passage, that the Nephilim are giants or angel-human hybrids. It doesn't say anything of the sort. They were mighty men, men of renown, period. doesn't say anything about angels. And um, anyway, so you get what I'm saying here. So here's the deal. Avoid like the plague people who are making the claim that the Nephilim are somehow somehow a, a human-angel hybrid. The biblical text never says that, never says it anywhere. And when you put it back in its immediate context, the sons of God are those who are descendant of Adam and Eve through Seth, those who were the ones who were calling on the name of the Lord. Plain and simple. So... There you have it. I, I I'm surprised I haven't covered it to you know th- this day. But the thing is, is that there's a there's there's some folks who uh, who are discern- doing discernment work who ought to know better and uh, and passing these kinds of bizarre mythologies along. But the biblical text never says anything of that uh, of that sort. And as a result of it, when people so- start talking like this, we completely discredit Christianity because it's just bizarre, stupid mythology. It isn't true, and there isn't a shred of truth to it. So, uh, you know, if you're, I know that some of you listening here, well, uh, uh, I, I disagree with you, Chris. Fine, I know you disagree with me. Show me a single biblical text that says that an angel can procreate with a human being. Jesus said they can't; that they don't even they're not even given in marriage. Prove to me from the biblical text that the so-called sons of God are uh, are actually angels. It doesn't say that. In fact. The people who are saying that are reading stuff into the biblical text that are not there. Anyway, I hope that you find that helpful. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Church. 
So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian turtle. Damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do. Chief ex- weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And- okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 <laughs> we'll soon change your mind about that! Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. All right, we're back. 
Warning, Stargate's Nephilim and Elvis Presley's uh, latest sightings, they're all distractions away from the biblical gospel. Christians don't even need to engage in that stuff. It's not what the Bible says. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. We're currently in our summer slump, and oh boy, are we in our slumber, <laughs> summer slump. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith, we truly could use your help. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons, and thank you, thank you, thank you in advance for supporting us. When you click on the uh, Join Our Crew button, you're signing up to contribute six ninety five every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 460 Three eight. Okay, let's uh, move along here. From the Albert Muller uh, web blog. Headline reads, False Start? The controversy over Adam and Eve heats up. Gotta love Albert Muller, by the way. Uh, each generation of Christians faces its own set of theological challenges. For this generation of evangelicals, the questions, the question of beginnings is taking on a new urgency. And yes, it is. In fact, this question is now a matter of gospel urgency. Yes, it is. How are we to understand the Bible story if we can have no confidence that we know how it even begins? In terms of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the most urgent question related to beginnings has to do with the questions related to the existence of Adam and Eve as the first parents of all humanity and to the reality of the fall as the explanation for human sinfulness and all that comes with sin. A report from Barbara Bradley Haggerty of National Public Radio a few weeks ago is an undeniable sign that even the secular world now recognizes that this is a question central to Christianity. Haggerty, a skilled religion reporter, talked to me and several others about the subject. Her interviews were broadcast as a report on August 9th, 9th with Steve Inskeep of NPR as host. Inskeep got right to the point. For many evangelicals, a historical Adam and Eve is a critical part of their theology, but now some conservative religious scholars are saying publicly that they can no longer believe it. Haggerty asked Dennis Venema, a professor of biology at Trinity Western University, if all human beings descended from Adam and Eve. Quote, that would be against all the genomics, uh, genomics, and, uh, genomics evidence that we've assembled over the past uh, 20 years, so not likely at all, Venema said. He explained that there is simply too much genetic diversity among human beings that would be possible with an original reproducing pair. Venema affirmed the standard evolutionary line of argument and explained that in Haggerty's words, quote, modern humans emerged from other primates as a large population long before the Genesis time frame of a few thousand years ago. Haggerty then talked to John Schneider, who taught theology at Calvin College for many years. Schneider took the argument even further as Haggerty reported, quote, Schneider, who taught theology at Calvin College in Michigan until recently, says it's time to face facts. There was no Adam and Eve, no serpent, no apple, no fall that toppled man from a state of innocence. Well, now we face a broader assault on the Bible's main storyline. Schneider leaves no doubt about the radical nature of his proposal. Quote, evolution makes it pretty clear that in nature and in moral experience of human beings, there never was any such paradise to be lost. So Christians, I think, have a challenge, have a job on their hands to reformulate some of their tradition about human beginnings. 
at this point, we are looking at a repudiation of the Bible's account of beginnings. We are not talking about an argument over the interpretation of a few verses or even chapters of the Bible. We are now dealing with the straightforward rejection, not only of the existence of Adam and Eve, but of both Eden and the fall. Look carefully at Professor Schneider's words. There never was any such paradise to be lost. Though shocking, this line of argument is not really new. The new development is the fact that growing numbers of evangelicals are apparently buying the argument. There are others pushing the same lines of argument. Daryl Fall, Catherine Applegate, writing at the Biologos Forum, responded to the NPR report with an article that repeatedly affirms the claim that Adam and Eve could not have been the primary and solitary human pair. They argue that science is unable to resolve the question of Adam and Eve as a whole, but they write, quote, All science can say is that there was never a time when only two people existed on the earth. It is silent on whether or not God began a special relationship with a historical couple at some point in the past. Later, they argue, quote, The most science can say is that there never there were never just two individuals who were the sole genetic progenitors of the entire human race. And they also claim again that genetics convincingly shows that there was never a time when there were just two persons. Ever since the challenge of Darwin and evolutionary theory appeared, some Christians have tried to argue that the opening chapters of the Bible should not be taken literally. While no honest reader of the Bible would deny the literary character of Genesis 1-3, through the fact remains that significant truth claims are being presented in these chapters. Furthermore, it is clear that the historical character of these chapters is crucial to understanding the Bible's central message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, for example, clearly understood Adam to be fully historical, a fully historical human who was also the genetic father of the entire human race. The fall of the human race in Adam sets the stage for the salvation of sinful humanity by Jesus Christ. But now Professor Schneider is telling us, quote, In the moral experience of human beings, there never was any such paradise to be lost. Carl Guyberson, who has also been affiliated with Biologos and is the author of Saving Darwin, How to Be a Christian and Believe in Evolution, goes so far as to argue that the biblical account of Adam and Eve, quote, was never intended to be read as literal history. But he was asked, what does this then say about the Bible's truthfulness and authority? Guyberson then wrote, quote, the Bible's not a book. It's a library. Dozens of very different books bound together. The assumption that identifying one part as fiction undermines the factual character of another part, well, it's ludicrous. It would be like going into an actual physical library and saying, well, if all of these books about Harry Potter are fictional, then how do we know these other books about Abraham Lincoln are factual? How can Lincoln be real if Potter is not? And then, aha, I have got you so much for your library. Uh, that is an amazingly deep and troubling paragraph. Guyberson uses the metaphor of the Bible as a library of books, a metaphor popularized by author Brian McLaren. Mm -hmm. But Guyberson then goes where many others lack the courage and the candor to go. He is ready to identify part of the Bible as fiction. In his words, the assumption that identifying one part of as fiction undermines the factual character of another part is ludicrous. Uh, what can his argument mean but that Adam is to be understood as like, well, Harry Potter, a fictional character, while Jesus is like Abraham Lincoln, a historical figure who really existed? The implications for biblical authority are clear, as is the fact that if these arguments hold sway, we will have to come up with an entirely new understanding of the gospel meta narrative 
and the Bible's storyline. The denial of a historical Adam and Eve as the first parents of all humanity and the solitary first human pair severs the link between Adam and Christ, which is so crucial to the gospel. If we do not know the story of the the gospel beginnings, we do not know what the story means. Make no mistake, a false start to the story produces a false grasp of the gospel. Amen and amen. Great point, Dr. Muller. Okay. Michael Horton of the uh, White Horse Inn, uh, a, a, you know, a friend and, uh, and, and, a, and a reformed Calvinist, has weighed in re- regarding um, the um, Mark Driscoll, uh, Phil Johnson, uh, well, the, the, the flap, the, uh, the controversy regarding whether or not uh, Mark Driscoll in his theology where he attacks cessationists as worldly, and and uh, then goes on to explain that he has a um, a Holy Spirit led theology and 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 the uh, in the um, knowledge that he receives pornographic visions from the Holy Spirit regarding individual people's sins. Well, Michael Horton has weighed in on this. Uh, uh, written yesterday, the name of the article is "Reformed and Charismatic." Here's what Dr. Horton says. He says, thanks for the healthy debate and interaction on the previous post. Obviously, those who believe that miraculous prophecy continues after the apostolic age should not be lumped together with radical movements like the New Apostolic Reformation. Nevertheless, it does provide indication to think carefully about the compatibility of Reformation. Notice, he's not saying Reformed at this point. It's Reformation theology with uh, a, with a charismatic emphasis. This is especially the case when there have been renewed calls for a reformed charismatic synthesis in our own circles. Okay, I've never been willing to die on the hill of cessationism, that is, the belief that the miraculous gifts such as prophecy, healing, and tongues have ceased, and I'm still not. Nevertheless, I'm convinced that non-cessationism is neither exegetically sound nor historically compatible with Reformed theology. Now we've switched to Reformed rather as opposed to Reformation theology. So he's Dr. Horton is making the case that um, the non-cessationists, okay, that theology that is represented here by Mark Driscoll and Wayne Grudem, that it's not exegetically sound and it is not historically compatible with Reformed theology. I would say that's absolutely true. Furthermore, the surprisingly widespread popularity of more radical views of ongoing sign gifts coupled with political ambition pushes me to the unpleasant position of challenging the views even of far sounder brothers with whom I agree on so many important points." As a charismatic Calvinist, Wayne Grudem has been used by God to bring the doctrines of grace to many who would likely not have encountered these truths otherwise. I have immense respect for his clear defense of many cardinal doctrines of Christianity. And at the same time, uh, the Calvinism charismatic bridge goes in both directions, and his view of continuing prophecy has contributed to a curious hybrid that in my view cannot survive in the long run. Reformed theology is a system, not one imposed on Scripture, but one that arises from the self-consistent Word of God. Mark Driscoll, a student of Grudem's, has recently claimed to have regular visions of the sinful, usually sexual behavior of people he encounters. I see things, he says, although the gift he describes is nowhere exhibited even in the apostolic era. Also posted on his Mars Hill website is a 
critique of cessationism as modernistic worldliness, lumping this view with deism and atheism. Functional cessationism is really about the mind, but functional charismatic theology is really about the heart, he concludes with a plea. You reform guys, especially you who are more Presbyterian, you tend to ignore the Holy Spirit and attribute everything to the, uh, everything the Spirit does to the gospel. Sovereign Grace Ministries, led until recently by C.J. Mahaney, has also followed Grudem's path toward a synthesis of Calvinistic and charismatic emphases. There is much to admire in these men and their labors. I'm not targeting these friends and brothers, but pleading with them and with all of us to rediscover the ordinary means of grace, ordinary ministry, ordinary offices, and to long for a genuine revival. That is a surprising blessing of God on his ordinary ministry in our day. The false choice between head and heart, the spirit and the word, has been a perennial polemic of the radical wing of Protestantism. Mark Driscoll's plea above reveals that dangerous separation of the spirit from his word. Only by assuming such a cleavage can one argue that Reformed theology ignores the Holy Spirit. We have had enough, quote, apostles, quote, prophets, and, quote, Moses model leaders who build ministries around their own gifts. We need to recover the beauty of Christ alone upon his throne as the priest king of his church, exercising his ministry by his spirit through preaching, sacrament, and discipline and mutually accountable communion with the wider body of Christ. Reformed theology is not just the five points in sovereign grace, but a rich, full, and systematic confession. It's a human and therefore fallible attempt to wrestle with the whole counsel of God in both doctrine and practice, soteriology and ecclesiology. Until we rediscover this riches, reformed will mean whatever my leader or circle believes. Of course, the biblical case that must be made cannot be made well in this brief space. However, I'll focus on the question of whether gifts of prophet and apostle have ceased. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, the apostle says that offices, prophets, and apostles, as well as pastors, teachers, and evangelists, are given of his heavenly ascension. Against both Rome and the radical Anabaptists, the reformers argued that prophet and apostle are extraordinary offices for a foundation-laying era. They are sent at key moments in redemptive history, and their writings are added to the canon of Scripture. Like the distinction between a nation's constitution and its courts, the biblical canon is qualitatively distinct from ecclesiastical interpretation. The former is magisterial or normative, while the other is ministerial or interpretive. Particularly in the wake of the Pentecostal and Charismatic movements, this question has divided Christians into two camps. Cessationists, believing that the gifts of healing, prophecy, and tongues have ceased, and non-cessationists. Non-cessationists find no exegetical reason to distinguish some of these gifts and offices from others in terms of their perpetuity. However, cessationists hold that the New Testament itself makes a distinction between the foundation-laying era of the apostles and the era of building the church on their completed foundation. See 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. Although the New Testament establishes the offices of pastors, teachers, elders, and deacons, it, it does not establish perpetual prophetic or apostolic offices with their attendant sign gifts, 
With this in mind, we must examine each gift in question. Paul treats prophecy, prophetia, as a as preaching, uh, uh, which although illumined by the Spirit, is unlike the Scripture, uninspired, and therefore must be tested. At Pentecost, the gift of tongues was a spirit-given ability to proclaim the gospel in languages that one had not been taught. The diverse crowd of visitors to Jerusalem or the feast, uh, for the feast asked, And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? We should therefore understand tongues as synonymous with natural languages, which some were miraculously gifted to speak and others to interpret. This served not only as a sign that Christ's universal kingdom had dawned, but as a practical way of disseminating the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. None of these gifts was given for the personal edification of believers alone, but for the spread of the gospel and the maturity of the saints in the word. Similarly, the gift of healing was a sign that Christ's kingdom had arrived, bringing a preview of the consummation in all of its fullness at the end of the age. Yet signs always cluster in the Bible around significant turning points in redemptive history, like the temporary prophesying of the elders in Moses' day. The extraordinary gift, gifts of signs and wonders are given to validate the sacred ministry of human ambassadors. Once that ministry is validated, it no longer requires further confirmation. For an excellent treatment of this topic, see Richard B. Gaffin, Jr.'s Perspectives on Pentecost, uh, published in 1979, especially pages 94 through 95. In relation to Wayne Grudem's contention that prophets and apostles in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and Ephesians 4, 11, refers to the same group. It would seem then that the gift of prophets and apostles, along with the gifts of miracles, prophecy, and tongues, was given but fulfilled its foundation-laying function. Just as Paul's understudy, Timothy, is an ordinary minister, we find no evidence that his ministry was attended by extraordinary signs and wonders. Some theologians, such as Wayne Grudem, recognize that the office of the apostle has ceased but are unsure if this question of the cessation of spiritual gifts can be decided from Scripture. This is, and following Grudem quotes from his systematic theology, see pages 906 uh, through 912 and uh, one, uh, 1031. With Grudem, I agree that 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13, which speaks of prophecies and tongues passing away, when the perfect comes is inconclusive. Paul is most likely referring to the consummation when there will be no need for faith and hope and all that will endure into eternity is love. However, I do not find Grudem's case for continuing prophecy persuasive. He clearly distinguishes prophecy today from prophecy that delivered the sacred oracles of Holy Scripture. This is both the strength and the weakness of his position. Grudem believes that the kind of prophecy that is ongoing in the church is distinguished from the preaching and teaching by being a spontaneous revelation from God. So the distinction is quite clear. If a message is the result of conscious reflection on the text of Scripture containing interpretation of the text and application to life, then it is, New Testament terms, a teaching. But if it's a message is a report of something God brings suddenly to mind, then it is a prophecy. This is what Grudem argues in, on page 1058 of his Systematic Theology. Horton then chimes and he says, In my view, this interpretation in introduces a definition of prophecy that is not consistent with its practice in, apost in the apostolic church. 
Nowhere is prophecy distinguished by its spontaneous quality. Furthermore, in spite of his salutary caution against raising such prophecies to the level of Scripture, this interpretation still raises the question as to whether the Spirit issues new revelations that are not already communicated in Scripture. If prophecy is defined simply as Spirit-given insight into Scripture, then it is, it is, then is this not synonymous with preaching? Today, the Spirit validates this ordinary ministry of the gospel through the preaching and the sacraments, the sign and the signs and wonders that Christ instituted to confirm his word. If it is true that the apostles understood their work as being extraordinary ministry of foundation laying and their miraculous signs as its validation, then no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 14, emphasis added. While living stones are continually being added to the temple, the edifice itself is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. As the person work of the head is distinct from its members, the foundation-laying ministry of the apostles is different from the upbuilding ministry of their successors. Where apostolic preaching became scripture, our proclamation, faith, and practice stand in continuity with the apostles to the extent that they conform to that rule. To understand scripture as canon within its ancient nearest Eastern treaty background is to recognize that, like the redemptive work to which it testifies, it cannot be revised by addition or by subtraction. While interpreters are always subject to change, the Constitution has been given once and for all. Similarly, the canon that witnesses to Jesus is the covenant that he ratified in his self-sacrifice. In its appeal to this canon and its practice of its stipulated rights, the church participates in the heavenly reality as servant rather than Lord of the covenant. Just as Jesus' history is qualitatively distinct from our own, the apostolic canon is qualitatively distinct from the subsequent tradition or preaching that interprets it. One is magisterial, the other ministerial. Just as the church does not extend or complete the work of redemption, but receives, interprets, and proclaims it, the church does not extend or complete revelation. The interim between Christ's advents is not an era of writing new chapters in the history of redemption. Rather, it is a period in which the Spirit equips us for the mission between Acts and the Apocalypse, right in the middle of the era of ordinary ministry with its New Covenant canon. Just as the Church cannot extend the Incarnation or complete Christ's atoning work, it cannot repeat Pentecost or prolong the extraordinary ministry of the Apostles, but must instead receive this same word and spirit for its ordinary ministry in the time between the times. Great points by uh, by Dr. Horton. And uh, the idea here is, is that we already have the foundation of the church laid, and the foundation of the church is that era where we see these miraculous gifts taking place. And these, these miracles are taking place to affirm, to proclaim and buttress the claim of the gospel itself. That's the foundation that's laid. We don't relay this foundation, and it doesn't need to be laid. We build upon that foundation by ordinary means, preaching the word, focusing on the apostolic teaching, digging into that and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and uh, you know, and I think at this point it's even cogent to bring in what Jesus said in the Great Commission. Let me point this out to you. 
In the Great Commission, Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 28. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The In the observe all that I have commanded you segment, we have that. The only place where we can go now, the only place that we can go in the all that I have commanded you department is to the apostolic teaching, plain and simple. And he says, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So the idea here is that there is a marked difference between the apostle Paul and the, the pastor Timothy. Timothy was given the job of preaching the word. The apostle Paul was was given the task of apostolically pro, you know, proclaiming his eyewitness encounter with the risen Jesus. And Paul's ministry was attended to by miracles. Timothy's was not. It doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be. We have now the, the sure foundation, and that's in the apostolic teaching. We don't need for uh, there to be tongues and and the the office of apostle and prophet and all that kind of stuff. We just don't need it. We've got the word. We've got the foundation. It's already laid. And Jesus said to observe all that I have commanded you. The only place we can go there to find that is in the apostolic teaching. So, yeah, I, you know, as I, as I now... I got to admit, this whole thing has been a little bit of a learning process for me because, as a Lutheran, we we I hate to say we don't really talk in these categories per se, and uh, and uh, but uh, the the reality is is this is that um, the way uh, cessationists have uh, defined what it is that they say have has ceased, I have to agree, I have to agree, and I can tell you as somebody who's observed countless numbers of people who claim to be receiving direct insight from God the Holy Spirit yeah that's a formula for disaster it's it creates a twin canon the internal word as opposed to the external word and always the internal word comes without the external word good night it's it's a formula for disaster where God's objective word gets shunted to the back and uh, people uh, put forward their experiences as as uh, on par with scripture and author- as just as authoritative it's it's a formula for a spiritual shipwreck and uh, you know and and yeah i think uh, qualitatively you know it it you know it there's not much difference really from people who claim to rely on these inner words uh, you know, even if they're care, if, if they're Calvinistic, if from what I see going on with the Patricia King gang and that and their like, so anyway, great contribution by uh, Dr. Michael Horton. Okay, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address: talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate christian. We'll be right back. A sermon review when we get back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? 
Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Verve in Las Vegas. Life coach. Sermonar speaker. Vince Antonucci presiding. You'll notice I didn't call him pastor. There's a reason for that, because <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think he fits the bill. What do they say if it, you know, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, swims like a duck? Well, it's a duck. Yeah, the problem is, is that uh, if somebody doesn't sound like a pastor, walk like a pastor, act like a pastor, sound, you know, or any of the, the, the well, they're not a pastor. They're something different. So the name of the sermon is Vervcation. Vervcation. Apparently that's uh, some kind of combination of the word verve and vacation, you know, mashed up together. And uh, 
Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what it means. Anyway, let's kill the music. So uh, without any further ado, here is uh, Vince Antonucci and Vervcation. I have no idea how this one's going to end, so uh, I hope for the best. Hopefully he'll correctly handle God's word and focus us on uh, Christ and him crucified for our sins and properly, well, you know, you can always hope. So here's Vince Antonucci. Hey, you're tuned in to the Verve Podcast live from the heart of Las Vegas, Nevada. Thanks for listening, and we will the Verve. You guys doing okay? All right? Yeah? Okay. Uh, hey, I'm glad to be back with you. I was gone last week. I was on kind of a vacation. My um, family went. We spent a couple of days in Raleigh, North Carolina, where my wife's family has moved to from Buffalo, New York. And then my mother and her, my sister and her family came down to Virginia Beach. My mom rented kind of a beach house, and we stayed there uh, for about a week, which is cool because we lived in Virginia Beach for 12 years before moving here almost three years ago. And so we got to see old friends and our church that we were at and started, and um, so it's pretty cool. And today, I actually, we're doing something kind of different. I actually want to talk to you about vacation, so it's kind of appropriate. Um, I want to tell you kind of a, a theory. Okay, I, all right, all right. We're already off to a bad start because here's the deal. Um, does the Bible tell pastors that they are supposed to preach about vacations? Is that is that what the what pastors are supposed to do, or do they have more important work to do? You know, such as preaching the word. Yeah. Now, I call me old school. Call me a curmudgeon. You whatever you want to. You know, call me a traditionalist. You can throw all kinds of epithets at me. It doesn't really matter. The point is, the biblical text tells pastors that their job is to preach the word. And um, well, he doesn't seem to be doing that. I have about vacations and see if you agree or not. It'll be up to you. All right. Uh, I love vacations. Anybody love? I know we asked you before, but you guys very fun. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a lot to love about vacations, I think. Right. Like one of my favorite things is, is even before you go on the vacation, it's the, the sense of expectancy that a vacation brings. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like when you're going to go on a vacation, you start getting excited about it and talking about it. And like you encourage each other. You're like, it's OK. It's OK. Vacation's two weeks away. Right. And you're, you're kind of like, no, 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 we can deal with this vacation next month. And, and, and there's just a sense of expectancy. And, and you start planning. And, and even if you don't like planning, it's fun to plan for a vacation. Um, some years ago, my uh, family, we went for the first time ever to Disney World. My kids are now 12 and 10. They were, I don't know how old they were, seven and five maybe. And um, so we, we bought this book that helps you plan your trip to Disney World. This book has scientific equations and mathematical logarithms to help you plan the order of rides to go in to avoid the long lines and get the most rides that you can in one day. I am not kidding. I spent hours and hours with this book planning out exactly what we would do, like the exact order of rides, where we would eat, what time my kids could go to the bathroom, all of it. Like, like it was down on paper. It was like, this is the plan. But it was fun to plan because it was for a vacation. And, and when you're going on vacation, there's just this great sense of expectancy and open it and excitement. And it's just great. And, and then finally, the day arrives and you leave, right? You get in your car to drive or you get in an airplane to fly somewhere. And there's just this cool sense of, man, we are going on a journey, 
You know, a lot of life just feels too stationary. It's like we're always doing the same. We're the same. But, but it's like now we're actually going somewhere. And that's just a cool part of vacation. There's a journey aspect to it. And that journey takes you out of your routine. Now, I realize that uh, routines are not all bad. You know, some routines are probably good and you need a little bit of that. But some of us, uh, man, we just get stuck in our routines, don't we? It just feels like all life is is a routine. Like we're, like we're just stuck in the, in the same old, same old, right? I mean, you wake up at the same old time when the same old... Okay, just a quick question. Is this why Jesus died on the cross to save you from the same old, same old? So that, you know, this side of his return, what would happen is, is that Jesus would, he, he's your personal savior from routine. Hmm. Don't think so. The alarm clock goes off. By the way, uh, why is it that we have to toil uh, in our work? Oh, yeah, that's part of uh, the curse for our disobedience against God. Read Genesis chapter 3. You get out of the same old bed. You stagger into the same old bathroom. You look at the same old face in the same old mirror. You brush your same old teeth. You walk down the same old stairs to the same old kitchen. You put the same old cereal and the same old milk in the same old bowl. Eat it with the same old spoon. You read the same old newspaper. You uh, kiss the same old wife. You get in the same old car. You drive the same old road to the same old job, sit at the same old desk. Listen to the same old jokes from the same old boss. Laugh the same old way. You clock out at the same old time. Get back in the same old car. Drive back through the same old road. Drive into that same old driveway. Walk into the same old kitchen. Hug the same old kids. Sit down at the same old dinner. Go into the same old living room. Sit in the same old chair. Watch the same old TV shows. Fall asleep at the same old time. Go upstairs and get in the same old bed. Ask your wife the same old question. Get the same old answer. Roll over, set the same old alarm clock, and the next morning you get up and you do the same old thing all over again. And, and at some point you start to go, maybe I'm not really living. Anyone ever, you know, it's like, I know I'm existing. Like, I, I, I'm like, so, I mean, is Jesus going to set you free from this? I mean, I, I, I mean, do people who attend seeker-driven churches, do they break free of this somehow? And are, are they able to go on the adventure of a lifetime? I, I'm curious existing but am i really living like this same old same old this rut that i'm in am i missing out on on life and that's part of what makes a vacation great is because it gets you out of that rut right for a couple days for a week however long your vacation is it's like yes i'm getting out of the same old same old and and i'm going to to get you know something new and what you get when you go on, on a vacation is you get an adventure Right? There's this sense of, man, it's going to be an adventure. And, and even if, like me, you plan out the vacation, still there's some sense of, like, you don't know what's going to happen. Right? It's like, you know, well, we got some plans, but who knows what we'll end up doing and what we'll end up eating and who we'll end up encountering. And it's just going to be exciting. I remember um, my wife and I have been married for 17 years. And uh, when we got married, we got, like a th- I think, three-day uh, honeymoon to the Bahamas. And we had two days planned, but one day we had no plans. So we rented a Jeep, and we just drove all over the island. So it's just this great sense of adventure. It's like, man, we have no idea what's going to happen. And that's kind of the cool part of a vacation, right? You get an adventure, right? You, you trade away the routine, you get an adventure. The other thing that I love about vacations, and I'm sure you do too, is that it's relaxing, Right? It's relaxing. Like you just get to escape 
the worries and the stress, you know, the, the phone calls, the leaky faucet, the stack of bills, the, the nagging boss. You just get to kind of leave that all behind. You escape it, and you just get to chill out, right? And, and you're not weighed down by all the stuff you're normally weighed down by. And, and, and vacations are great. Vacations are great. Now, I want to tell you this theory that I have about vacations. Uh, but first, let's establish this. Did you know that when Jesus lived here on earth, uh, when he met people, he basically never asked people to believe in him or to put their faith in him? That's probably what you would expect, right? What? Um, hang on a second here. Uh, I, I did not just hear him say that. Uh, I got to back the audio up. Hold on a second. Did you know that when Jesus lived here on earth, uh, when he met people, he basically never asked people to believe in him or to put their faith in him? That's probably what you... Okay, we're going to test that. That's just absolutely bizarre. Um, and I'm going to challenge it. Uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. If you have your Bible, flip on over to God, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. I'll start at verse 1. We're going to do context, context, context here. And I want to see, he's saying that Jesus never wanted people to believe in him or put their faith and trust in him. That's kind of the idea here. John, chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus uh, said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, well, how can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus here says that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's just one quote, but let's... People, he basically never asked people to believe in him or to put their faith in him. Okay, so according to Vince Antonucci, people, Jesus never asked people to believe in him or put their faith in him, yet Jesus here in the red letters in, in the Gospel of John says, whoever believes in him, Jesus may have eternal life. And Jesus goes on to continue talking here. John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus speaking, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish 
but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, this is Jesus speaking, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Hmm. Um, yeah, let's back up the audio again here. Met people. He basically never asked people to believe in him or to put their faith in him. Hmm. That's probably. Hmm. Yet Jesus there in the red. So who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Vince Antonucci or are you going to believe John, the apostle John, the eyewitness to the life of Jesus, John, and what he said Jesus said to Nicodemus? I mean, Hmm. What you would expect, right? That, that he would kind of go up to people and be like, hey, I'm Jesus, believe in me. Hey, man, how's it going? What's up? I'm Jesus, put your faith in me. But, but that's actually not what he did. It might be what we expect, but not what he did. What he actually did is he asked people to follow him. He'd be like, hey, I'm Jesus, follow me. Hey, man, what's uh, Not exactly. No, that's not exactly correct. What's going on? How you and notice how he's pitting belief against follow. And he's, he's not doing this from a biblical text. He's just making these assertions without any biblical text at all. How you doing? I'm Jesus. Follow me. And so Jesus requested people. It wasn't believe in me. It was follow me. It's like, I am going somewhere, and I want you to go with me. Now, the reality is probably people wouldn't follow him if they didn't believe in him. But still, he didn't ask them to believe in him. He asked people to follow him. And Gospel of John, chapter 6. Gospel of John, chapter 6, starting at verse 25. When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has sent his seal. So then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, quote, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. And he made a promise. He made a promise to people that if you say yes, if you follow me, really follow me, not just believe in me, like you go with me, you follow me, he made this promise that he would give life. Basically, hmm, isn't that weird that he, Vince Antonucci is making these claims without any biblical text at all, and I'm quoting the biblical text, and the biblical texts are the exact opposite of what it is that he says. The exact opposite hmm um yeah weird huh saying you know you have existence i'll give you life uh, like in john chapter 10 verse 10 we'll put it on the screen for you he says i have come that they may have life and have it to the full hmm uh, uh apparently he doesn't read his bible because he, he is engaging in the same scripture twisting techniques that the cults engage in Check your uh, Fighting for the Faith podcast for the um, PDF document that uh, was available, made available with yesterday's program regarding the 20 different scripture-twisting 
ways in which the cults, you know, mangle God's word. It's called scripture twisting. And uh, what he's doing here is he's taking a, a John chapter 10, verse 10, out of context. I mean, here's what the here's what it says. I came that may have life and have it abundantly. No context provided there. And yet he's absolutely sure that what this means is, is that Jesus came so that you wouldn't have an ordinary and mundane life. Is that what Jesus is promising there? And by the way, that's only half of the verse. And it's weird that he's left out all this context. So uh, Vince Antonucci here is basically claiming Jesus never said to people, have believe in me or have faith in me. No, he never said that. He said, follow me. Yet he didn't provide a single passage for that. And I provided verses that say the exact opposite. And now he's claiming, you know, by ripping John 10.10 out of context, that Jesus is trying to hear, basically say, if you follow me, if you follow me, I will make it so that you don't have a mundane existence. Hmm. Let's uh, let's read it in context. John chapter 10, uh, verse 1. By the way, if you really want the full context, you have to go into chapter 9 and read the story of how Jesus healed a blind man who was a guy who was blind from birth. Okay, This is after all of that and in still in that context. That's still the immediate context of what's going on here. Jesus is having a running battle with the Pharisees who were upset because uh, this blind guy was healed on the Sabbath, right? And uh, and so you know and you know it goes through all of that rigmarole rigmarole I can't say the word right now uh, rigmarole there we go got it and uh, now Jesus still in that context says this in verse one truly truly I say to you he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way that man is a thief and a robber but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come so that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, interesting, when you put it back in context, you can't say, oh, Jesus here is saying, if you follow me, then I will make it so that you go from having a boring, ordinary, mundane existence to having real life. It's not what he's saying here. The, 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 this is, Jesus is in the middle of talking about a metaphor, and the metaphor is the comparison between how a shepherd handles the sheep as opposed to how a wolf handles the sheep. The sheep scatters them and divides them. Oh, the wolf, I'm sorry, the wolf scatters them and divides them. The shepherd cares for them and 
takes care of them, and Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. See what's going on here? By the way, because Vince Antonucci is wrongly handling God's word, is twisting it, pulling out of context, and making statements that are contrary to what the clear teaching of the word of God says, he is behaving like a wolf. He is absolutely 100% behaving like a wolf. And what he's teaching is not in accord with what Jesus taught at all. In fact, by contradicting Jesus, Vince is actually, actually teaching doctrines or teachings of demons, contrary to the Word of God and contrary to Christ. That's just a fact. You might say, we already have life. We're living. He's like, no, 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 you have... You have something, you have existence, but I can give you full, abundant life if you follow me. Now, that may surprise some of you. If you're honest, you might say, really? Because I I always thought that Jesus came to bring religion. The Bible says, no, Jesus came to do away with religion. Maybe you say, I always thought Jesus came. Yeah, the funny thing is he's saying Jesus is offering you abundant life if you follow me. That's law talk. That's all religion. Weird, isn't it? Honestly, to bind us. I says, no, Jesus came to release us. Maybe you say, I, I always kind of felt like Jesus came to, to kind of, I don't know, enslave us with like rules and regulations. Mm-mm. The Bible says, no, Jesus came to give us freedom. And I'll tell you this, uh, about 20 years ago, I kind of encountered Jesus for the first time. I I saw who he was. I I didn't know about him. I didn't believe in him. But I I understood who he was. And I knew that his call is not believe in me. It's follow me. And I I... Yeah, uh, this is directly contradicted by everything in the New Testament. This guy is teaching a form of works righteousness. I said yes. I was like, I want that. And, And so I said yes to following Jesus. And so now for the last 20 years... I've been trying to follow Jesus, and, and I've been trying to understand what does it mean to follow Jesus? I mean, you, you can't see him. You can't hear him. What does it look like to follow Jesus? And some years ago, I came up with this theory. Here's my theory, that following Jesus should look a whole lot like going on a lifelong vacation. Okay, I'm going to point something out to you. He just said, I've been trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus because he's rejected that. Christianity calls us to believe in Jesus. But since the Bible doesn't teach that we follow Jesus the same way the apostles did, and that instead we're called to believe and trust in Jesus, this is what the New Testament teaches throughout the entire thing, um, he's come up, he, he, he himself has had to come, he's come up with his own theory about what it means to, um, to follow Jesus. Yeah, because the Bible doesn't teach what he believes. Um, so he's come up with his own theory. Well, I mean, you d- never let the Bible get in the way of your own personal religion, the thing you made up yourself. So apparently his theory, not what the apostles taught, but his, Vince Antonucci's own personal theory is that being a follower of Jesus is like being on vacation. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, nobody should be listening to this guy, at least in the sense of listening to him and going, oh, this man's a guy, man of God. He's correctly telling me what God's word teaches me. People should run as if they're going to end up in hell if they keep listening to him and going to his church. 
that following Jesus looks a lot like going on a lifelong vacation. I realize that sounds goofy, and you may at first glance go, does it Yeah, it sure does. Doesn't make sense. But, but stay with me. I'll, I'll kind of explain it and see what you think, okay? So, like, vacation. Okay, and the cool thing is that since you're explaining it while I'm doing it on the radio, while I'm reviewing it on the radio, I will be able to explain what I think as we listen. So that's cool. One of the great things about vacations is that you have this sense of expectancy, right? It's like, man, you know, something exciting is going to happen. You know, it's going to be fun. I'll tell you this. Uh, before encountering Jesus, before deciding to follow Jesus, the, the one thing my life lacked was expectancy. My, I uh, so what? What are you expecting right now? I mean. I told you my life was horrible. Reality, it was, it was okay. But I had no hopes it would ever change. Like, I just thought, it's, I mean, there's always going to be the same problems. There's some problems, and I mean, I'm sure something different's going to happen, but life's just not that great, you know? I had no, no sense of expectancy until I started following Jesus, and that changed everything. Now, I have this sense of, this sense of excitement and hope about what might happen, because God promises it. In the Bible, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, We'll put this on the screen as well. Uh, God says, for I know the plans I have for you, says, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. God says, I've got a plan for your life. There is something. Ex- Here we go again, the Jeremiah 29.11 heresy. Uh, by the way, Jeremiah 29.11 was not written to you and I. Again, the simple solution here. Uh, what is Vince Antonucci doing? He's ripping verses out of context in order to weave together his own theology. This isn't the, what the Bible teaches. Does the Bible teach that you can have a sense of expectancy because God says to you, I know the plans I have for you, you individual, you listener, declares the Lord plans for good and not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. Is that what Jesus says to you? Is this what is really that's what's going on? Answer, not on your life. Context, context, context. Let's put it back in context and figure out what's going on in this passage. Jeremiah chapter 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jeremiah 29, verse 1, makes it clear this letter wasn't written to you, okay? This was a letter written by the prophet Jeremiah directly under the command of God the Holy Spirit to a particular people in a particular historical context. Now, unless you're so old that you are a survival of the exile, that means that you were captured by Nebuchadnezzar and taken to Babylon um, this what's said here isn't specifically written to you, but watch this. So this was after the king, after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Notice the historical context. He completely ripped that verse out of its historical context in order to make it say something it doesn't say. Okay, Thus it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what God tells them to do. You ready? Build houses, live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. God is commanding the exiles that have just been taken captive into Babylon. They've been transplanted from their home in Israel, in Judah, in Jerusalem, and taken captive as exiles to the land of Babylon. God's first command to you is, you, while you're there, keep on keeping on. Guys and gals, you need to hook up. You need to get married and have children. Do not decrease your population, but increase it. That's what God said to the exiles. Now, is he saying that to you? Not exactly, but you get what I'm saying here. Take wives. Okay, you got that. Uh, Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile don't seek its destruction. Don't don't act. Don't be pulling off that. You know, in other words, don't be a bunch of uh, zealot um, terrorists. No. Instead, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Okay, There was false prophets saying other things. Okay, Now verse 10. For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and then I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And those of you who have been taught that Jeremiah 29.11 is about you should all be going, oh, When you put it back in context, this isn't a promise made to me at all. Correct, it's not. Vince Antonucci is doing what the Apostle Paul warned us prophetically would happen in the last days. That people would no longer tolerate sound doctrine, but would instead gather around themselves uh, teachers that would teach them things to, to itch their itching ears. Okay? This is not biblical doctrine that he's teaching. He's he's scratching itching ears. He's telling people what they want to hear. It's this is a positive, fluffy message of uh, of the God who doesn't tell you to believe in Him. No, 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 no. He just wants you to follow Him. It's like a vacation because and see when you when you follow Him and, and your life is like a vacation. Well, then you have a sense of expectancy. And look, God promises you all these wonderful things. Isn't it great? And what's missing? 
the proclamation, the true proclamation that you are dead in trespasses and sins and guilty of transgressing God's law and that you are going to burn in hell unless you repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. What Vince Antonucci is doing here is he's preaching a different and a false gospel, and this false gospel is built on passages ripped out of context and made to say things that the Bible does not say or teach. This is the epitome of what it means to be a false teacher and a wolf. Exciting coming, and so you can live with a sense of expectancy. And I'll tell you, what's happened for me in these last 20 years is I've started to experience the plans that God has for me. It gives me this kind of, this feeling that every day when I wake up, I don't know what might happen that day. Because I know God's involved in my life, and he's got this plan. And so it's not like something amazing happens every day, but it could, and it has often. And so every day I kind of wake up going, man, I wonder what's going to happen today. And, and following Jesus gives you a sense of expectancy, a lot like a vacation. One of the reasons that happens is because you find yourself now on a journey. You know, with vacations, one of the nice parts is, you know, we're not stationary anymore. We're dynamic. We're going somewhere. There's this interesting thing in the Bible. Uh, there's a bunch of verses that I didn't understand when I first started reading the Bible, where, where it talks about um, walking with God. Like for us, it says you should walk with God. And then there's some verses that talk about walking with Jesus. And then there's a couple of verses that talk about why don't you read those verses in context? I mean, I mean, just simply kind of sort of kind of uh, referring to them is not the same as reading them and exegeting them correctly in context. Notice he's not doing that. Another sign. This is classic tactic of false teachers and the cults walking with God's spirit. And I'm like, what's all the walking? Like, what's the deal with the walking? And I'm not completely sure still, but, but part of it is that there's this, um, this implication that you're going somewhere, right? Like, it's not just about believing and, yes, I've changed my mind about what I believe about God. And I, no, it, it's about I am journeying through my life with God. We're going somewhere together. To, to believe in God, to follow Jesus is to go on a journey, I got any verses that say that care to read them for us in context, sir. I'm not static anymore. I'm not stationary. I'm going somewhere. We'll be moving on up to the east side to a deluxe apartment in the sky. Sounds like the Jefferson's theology I'm hearing here. <clears throat> we continue. And that journey that, that he takes you on, it takes you out of your routine. That, that same old, same old that a lot of us are, are stuck in. And what it does is it gives you an adventure. You get an adventure. Here's what I would challenge you to do. Sometime 
uh, read the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. Those are the books that describe Jesus' life here on earth. And, uh, and study, specifically study, uh, the lives of the people who decided to say yes and follow Jesus. Here's what you'll find. Finding Jesus did not turn them into people who were very respectable and went to church on Sunday mornings wearing the right clothes and acting very polite because they had good manners. That's uh, By the way, this is what we call historical anachronisms, okay? This is a historical anachronism. By the way, um, the, the, uh, the apostles um, spent time in synagogue, which is the ancient Jewish equivalent of church if every Sabbath. And uh, what's really funny is is that when you read the book of Acts, it's very clear that the apostles, especially uh, Paul and Barnabas, uh, when they would were out on their missionary journeys, they would begin by going to synagogue. And they acted very respectfully, with one exception, and that is is that they, when, when asked to speak, would always talk about Jesus being the promised Messiah and that they were eyewitnesses to his bodily resurrection. I mean, this, this, you're not hearing sound biblical doctrine. You're hearing literally the teaching and preaching of a Bible twister, a cult leader, if you would. Not what happened to people who followed Jesus. What happened is that the people who followed Jesus got an adventure. Their lives became dangerous. Their lives, honestly, their lives became too much for them. It became so exciting, so dangerous, so crazy that they couldn't handle it. But they were with Jesus, and so they weren't alone. And so it's like, you know what? You care to give us any example? I mean, you're just making all of these assertions without, without quoting or citing a single passage in context. Weird, don't you think? I can't do this, but God's with me, and he's walking with me, and I'm following Jesus, and so this thing is working. But they got an adventure, and here's the deal. It's not just people who lived 2,000 years ago. It's not just people we read about in the Bible. Everyone, everyone who authentically, truly, passionately follows Jesus gets an adventure. Everyone. Really, do you have a Bible passage that says everybody who follows Jesus will have an adventurous life, will get an adventure? I'd like to see that verse, please, in context. Everyone. It's what's happened in my life. I mean, I could tell you story after story about, about things that have happened in the last 20 years. I'm like, I couldn't make this stuff up. I couldn't dream it up. But the things that have happened to me are amazing, and it's because I'm following Jesus. And it's not just me. It was really cool last week. So um, actually, I started this church in Virginia Beach in 1997, a lot like Verve. And um, I was there for 12 years and then moved here about two and a half years ago. Uh, but it was cool because I hadn't been back to Virginia Beach for two years and eight months. And so I got to catch up with a lot of people and kind of hear what's happened since I've been gone. And, uh, just he- and now he's preaching from his own life. Hearing about the adventures that God has given these ordinary people. Um, like there's this uh, one lady in our church named Monica. Monica... Probably upper 30s, got a couple kids, married. Um, she's a nurse. So uh, some years back, our church in Virginia Beach, uh, we adopted this village in the mountains of uh, Vietnam. This village, I and mean, the people there, st- you wouldn't believe it if you saw it. it. They still live like 
you know, 2,000, 4,000 years ago, nothing's changed. They have no health care at all. They got no nothing. They sell their kids to people to make money. I mean, it, it's just a horrible thing. But, but we've come in and uh, we've given them clean water. They, they, had, they drank water from the river that goes through their village, which has water buffaloes walking through it and pooping in it. And that's what they drink in. Had to get poop in here today. Thank you very much. Um, but we, we've gone in and, and uh, it, it's a miraculous story. The Vietnamese government... The atheistic, communistic Vietnamese government asked me if we would please have our church adopt this village and help them. It was crazy. And we said yes. We started doing trips there to help them. Monica, nurse, starts going over and giving them just some basic health care that they've never had. She's about to make her fourth trip to Vietnam. And she and her family are starting to pray about moving to this village and just living there and uh, being a part of really helping those people. Mm, Okay, so the people in Virginia Beach, because they chose to become followers of Jesus, got to go on the adventure of a lifetime by uh, traveling to Vietnam. And what's the adventure that the people in Vietnam in this village get when they decide to follow Jesus? What's their adventure? Hmm? Monica decided to follow Jesus, and what he gave her was an adventure. One of my best friends uh, in Virginia is named Mike, and um, we, we used to meet a lot, uh, like for lunch. And st- Again, I, I would just like to point out, there is not a single passage in the Bible that says, if you become a Jesus follower, you have a life of adventure. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. Hmm stuff. And Mike would always say, man, following Jesus has changed my life. I just want my friends to experience it. And they have no interest, none. And and he had this best friend named Rick and he kept inviting Rick, man, come to church with me. You know, it's changed my life. Maybe it would change yours. And, and I actually got to meet Rick once or twice. He came, I think on an Easter and he came to a class I taught once. And he just seemed like a guy who was just stuck in the same old, same old, that that, he just seemed like that guy to me. And, um, and Mike kept inviting him, inviting him. He, he would get creative and find new things to invite him to, new ways to invite him, and just no interest. And then one day, uh, Mike is standing in the lobby of his church, and in walks Rick and his family. And he's like, weird, why are you here? And he's like, I don't know. And, uh, and then he came back the next week, and the next week, and the next week. And pretty soon, Rick uh, had his own encounter with Jesus, and he said, Man, this is real, and I, um, I want to follow Jesus. Rick's life has been completely transformed. In fact, Mike was telling me that when, um, when the tornadoes hit Joplin, uh, Mike's phone rings and it's Rick. And Rick says, dude, we got to go. Mike was like, what are you talking about? He's like, let's get in our car and go to Joplin and do whatever we can to help. And so the two of them jump in their car at Rick's leading, who refused to go to church in the past. And the same old, same old guy, he leads Mike to go to Joplin and they rescue, do rescue work and rebuilding stuff. And then Rick now has an adventure. And it's because he listened to Mike and he decided to follow Jesus. Mike has an adventure. He, he has friends who have an adventure because of him. And it's because he follows Jesus. There's another lady named Patricia. And Patricia showed up at our church real early on, so probably 10, 11, 12 years ago. And um, her husband had just left her. And she had a couple uh, girls, ugly situation. Her, her life was a mess. And it's kind of like, oh, this is bad. But, but um, Patricia followed Jesus. 
and uh, her life started to turn around, and, and some really cool things have happened. In fact, some of you have met Patricia's daughter, Elizabeth, who is here. Uh, she has decided to move to Papua New Guinea, where she is going to help the people there and uh, translate the Bible for the first time ever into the language of the people who live there. Uh, that's Patricia's daughter who came out of this really messy situation. But Patricia, unbeknownst to me, I, I just found out about it, has been saving up money for a while, and she just bought a little old apartment building, which she moved into, and she's transforming that apartment building into a shelter for battered women. Patricia uh, decided to follow Jesus, and what he gave her was an adventure. And the same would be true for you. Jesus is calling you to follow him, and what he's offering you is life, full, abundant life. And he says, man, I will rip you out of that same old, same old routine where you feel like you have no purpose and no meaning and no excitement, and I will give you an adventure. Uh, No, actually, Jesus says that he will forgive you of your sins based upon the fact that he died on the cross for them. Weird, don't you think? Just like a vacation. The other thing uh, that vacations are great for is they're relaxing, right? We said, you know, it's just like you kind of get everything off. Here's what I've noticed. Tell me if I'm wrong. Like when you go on vacation, like when you walk out your house, right, to get in the car, to go to the airport, isn't it like, don't you have this kind of like, right? When you go on vacation, even if it's just for a day or two and you just feel like, yes, you know, I I don't need to worry about the dripping faucet, the stack of bills, the nagging boss, whatever. And it's just like, I'm not even going to think about that. I'm going to have fun. I'm relaxing. I'm leaving all that behind. And it is a great feeling, right? True. Yeah. But have you noticed that when you're done with vacation, you get back in the car, back in the airplane and you go home, what's waiting for you at the front door? All your problems, right? And all the stress and all the work. And you're like, the faucet's still leaking. The bills are still sitting there. My boss is still a jerk. Like, it's like nothing. I, it's nice. I got a temporary reprieve. You know, I got a, a couple of days. I got a week away from all that. And we need that. We need to relax and decompress. But when you go back, it's like, it's a very temporary solution for our problems, right? Here's what I found. Um, when you say yes to following Jesus... What happens is that you get that same sort of uh, sense of relaxation that you do from getting uh, on a vacation, but it happens in a deeper way and in a much more permanent kind of abiding way. Really? You got any text for this other than your own personal experience? Than it does through a vacation. Here's how uh, Jesus describes it. Here's, here's the offer he's making to you. So this is Matthew chapter 11. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, by the way, if you don't own a Bible, we give them out for free. So we have a thing called the Velcro bar. It's our connecting place. If you have questions, if you want to get connected, anything, if you want to start serving here or whatever. Uh, but we also give out free Bibles back there. So uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says this to you. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. A yoke is an instrument that connects two animals. It, it partners animals up so they can work together. So Jesus is saying, let's, let's partner together. Like, like let's kind of um, have this relationship that, that, that binds us together in a sense. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What Jesus is saying is, he's saying, listen, I'm not going to remove 
your problems. I'm not going to remove the things that stress you out and make you worry. But what I will do is I'll help you carry them. I'll help you carry them. And it will make all the difference for you. God offers us this. There's another point in the Bible, in the book of 1 Peter, where God says, cast all your cares on me because I care for you. Whatever it is that stresses you out, whatever it is that you worry about, give it to me, cast it on me, and I will help you to carry that burden. And then here's what God says he'll give you. Uh, In the book of Philippians, he says that he will give you a peace that passes understanding. A peace that passes understanding. The idea being, like, even in the midst of stress, even in the midst of problems, even with your financial debt and your struggling marriage and your rebellious, whatever it is, that you will have this peace. If you're really following Jesus, if you're authentically walking with God, that you have this peace that passes understanding. You won't understand it. You'll be like, man, this is really stressful stuff, but I... I'm just not stressed out the way I used to would have been from it. Okay, let's let's take a look at this real quick. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What is is he specifically talking about here? What kind of rest is he talking about? Well, I think that uh, a a good cross-reference for this really is found in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience who is being driven by a uh, uh, basically a works-based religion that has lost sight of the of the biblical gospel, which is clearly taught in the Old Testament, the religion of the Pharisees. And here, here's uh, here's what this passage says: uh, uh, Matthew twenty three verse, uh, actually verse one. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees they sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their flacketaries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at the feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. <clears throat> yeah, that's what I think this is what Jesus is talking about here. It's this idea that um that uh, you're talking about those who are who are being heavy laden with the false religion of the Pharisees, okay? Um <clears throat> now as for, you know, got you know, giving you a life of vacation rest. That's how he interpreted it. God apparently is going to give us a life of vacation rest if you just follow Jesus. But yet this thing doesn't make any sense. And the reason why is because the Bible, number one, doesn't promise that. And number two, Jesus himself promises us persecutions in this life. Let me give you an example. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. I'm going to start... um, at verse 22, Paul 
writing against the so-called super apostles, which were they weren't anything of the sort. He says, "Are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they off? Are they the offspring of Abraham? Well, so am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman." Paul says with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Yeah, that doesn't sound like uh, Apostle Paul was grasping onto his promise of vacation rest. Apparently he missed that part of Jesus' revelation. There's just something that I have like an inner peace despite the troubles. I, I got to be honest, I hesitate to say that because it just sounds to me like so um, trite. You know, it sounds like such church talk, you know, like, hey, you'll have problems, but you'll be able to smile through them because God. Yeah, it is tripe. I'm sorry, did you say tripe? It was tripe. Yeah, it's tripe. I will be with you. And and so I hesitate to say it because I hate sounding that way. The the reason I have to say it is because it's true. Like, it's actually true. So, like, I've been doing uh, ministry, being a pastor, whatever, for uh, I don't know how many years now. And and what I've noticed is that uh, I have seen people go through everything, everything. um, Husbands leaving, um, teenagers dying in car accidents, Babies dying of SIDS, houses burning down with every possession they own, uh, cancer. I've, I've seen people go through things I wouldn't tell you about because it's too disturbing for you to know. And I, I wish it wasn't in my brain. I, I've seen people go through everything. And what I've noticed is that people who are truly following Jesus, I mean, they're really partnered up with him, right? And they're, they're walking with God. Law, not gospel. That they go through those problems with a peace that I just can't understand, and neither can they. Now, I'm not saying that, they, that they're like, it's okay, it's God's plan, it's fine. I, I'm not saying that at all. I mean, they're saying, no, this sucks. Like, I hate that I'm having to go through this, and I don't want it. But I, ha- I just have this peace that it's okay, and, and then I can handle this, and I don't understand why I do. And, and it's because that's what happens when you follow Jesus. And uh, speaking of the problems that we go through, let, let me just uh, hang out here for a minute because uh, I want to make sure you don't misinterpret my theory. So my theory is that following... Yeah, by the way, again, he's not preaching biblical doctrine. He's preaching his own theory. Is that what pastors are supposed to do? And Jesus is kind of like going on a lifelong vacation. And when you hear that, you might uh, think that what I mean is you won't have any problems and it will never be boring. Every day will be this great, peaceful, wild adventure. And it, that's not what I'm saying. Because when you think about it, vacations have boring parts and they have, you know, maybe you should just cut the theory and uh, get back to the Bible and just let the Bible tell us what the Christian life is rather than your own experiences and theories. Problems. 
right? Every vacation has some boring parts. Like uh, that first trip we went to to Disney years ago, uh, we drove from Virginia Beach to Orlando, 12-hour drive. That's a boring drive. But because we were on vacation, there was something different about it. It was like boredom with excitement, boredom with expectancy. It was like, man, it's boring, but we know we're going to something good. So it's worth it to be bored, right? When we got there, there were times we would have to wait for like, I don't know, 20 minutes for Space Mountain. And it's boring to stand in a line for 20 minutes, but it was okay because it was boredom with a purpose. You know, it's not just boredom. It's boredom because we're waiting for something really good to happen. It's going to be fun. And so it's, it's worth it to go through the boredom, right? This is what happens when you don't preach the Bible and you preach your own theories. See, there's boredom. There's still boring times when you follow Jesus, but there's something different about it. You know, all, those bore, the, all these stories about your life, they're boring. Can we actually get back to, you know, hearing about Jesus for real? About it. When you really follow Jesus, it's boredom with expectancy. It's boredom with purpose. It's like we're waiting. Purposefully expectant boredom. Yeah, I never heard of such a theology. But we know there's something good coming. We know because we're on an adventure. And so I can handle the boredom because I know where I'm going. There's also problems when you go on a vacation. There's always problems, right? Some are benign, some not so much. Like, so that trip to Disney, right? I bought this book and I literally spend, I don't know how many hours trying to understand logarithms and planning out exactly what we're going to do. And so uh, we get there to the park like an hour before the doors open, which is what you're supposed to do. And uh, we get, we're at the gate. Like we're the first people in line. And pretty quickly, thousands of people show up. If you're the type who like get there three hours after the park opens, you don't know thousands of people are there an hour early, all ready to go in because they all read the same book. And so um, we're there, we're at the gate, thousands of people behind us, and uh, they open the gate and we just start running. I got like a five-year-old daughter who's like, ah! Maybe we should call this Mickey Mouse theology. And I'm like, get in line, come on, move it, move it. And so we're running, and it's awesome because everybody's behind us. And this is like, like yes, the plan is working to perfection, and we are all going for the same ride because we've all read the same book. And we know that's the ride that's going to have the huge lines later. So you do that first, get rid of that one, and, and then you go to the second biggest one. You kind of follow this pattern. And so we're all running to the same ride. And I'm like, we're going to be the first ones in line. We'll do that one, and then we're going to do the next one, and we're going to hit all with no lines. And so we're running with like the sense of like joy and yes. And then I look back and I see that the entire line, all the thousands of people have all taken a right. And we're still going straight all by ourselves. I'm like, wait a second. And so there's a, a Mickey Mouse employee there and I grab him and shake him with his ears falling off. And I said, isn't the big ride that way? And he said, no, it's that way. It points to where everybody else is going. And I realized I had blown the entire plan, all the planning for nothing. Like, it was a problem. I was like, really? We got here an hour early for this. Vacations always have problems. They always do, right? Last week. Uh, Keep in mind, the story is not in the Bible. Uh, so we went to Raleigh for a couple of days and I hung out with my wife's family. And then we rented a car to drive up to Virginia Beach. We're gonna... This story also is not in the Bible.
stay at our friend's house. The next morning, return the car. We were borrowing a friend's car for the rest of the week so we didn't have to pay for rental all week. And so we drive from Raleigh to Virginia Beach. We get to our friend's house. We park. We go in. We're hanging out, catching up with them. And then uh, the husband, father, says, oh, I got to run pick up Thomas from soccer practice. So he runs out of the house. We're sitting there talking to everybody else in the family. When two minutes later, he walks in and he says, hey, Vince. And I said, hey. And he said, um... I just hit your rental car, and I said, is it bad? And he said, yep. And so we go out there, and we realize that he has knocked the bumper off of our rental car. It's like, you knocked the bumper off. So we call the rental place, and we're like, hey, we rented this car. We're supposed to return it in the morning. The bumper got knocked off. Can you guys just come and, like, tow it to the rental place? And they're like, no, you have to return it. We're like, okay, it's drivable. We can return it. Is it okay if we just throw out the bumper? I mean, it's toasted. And, and uh, they say, no, we need the bumper. And I'm like, okay, there's a problem. The bumper won't fit in the car. Like, just period. And we've got four people and suitcases in the car. The bumper won't fit. And they're like, you have to bring the bumper. So we end up in the middle of the night with me holding a flashlight and my friend using zip ties to tie the bumper onto the car. It's quite creative. And it worked. Yeah, this is really creative. It has nothing to do with the Bible or sound theology. Again, he's preaching his own theory using his vacation. His vacation is the underpinning of his theological theory. Uh, But it was a problem, and here's the deal. Every vacation has problems, okay? So when I say that following Jesus is like going on vacation, I'm not saying there's no problems. You'll still have problems. But tell me if you don't agree with this. When you go on a vacation... I don't even need to hear it. I already don't agree with it because you're not preaching from the Bible, Vince. And you have problems, there's something different about them than the problems that you experience in regular life. There's something different. What I found is if I go through all the vacations I've ever been on and and think about the problems, they're all stories that we talk about and laugh at now. It's like, oh, yeah, remember we we were driving down there and the tire blew. and, And you laugh about the problems that you had on vacation. I never laugh about the problems I have in regular life. And I've tried for a while to figure out what that is. Like, why is it that there's something so different about the problems that I experienced on vacation? I don't know. I've got some theories. I'll hit you real quick. Um, so you got a theory about your theories now. This, so this is a theory within a theory. This is not Christian teaching at all. Like, one is, I wonder if maybe it's because, like, when you're on vacation, you're on a mission. Like, you have a purpose, you know what you're doing. And so, yes, the, the problem is an interruption of your purpose, but you still have that purpose. You know, it's still like, we're going to get back on track and we're, we're going to get going. Maybe that's why. Uh, or it could be because when you're on vacation, typically you're not alone. You got friends or you got family. And so even though we're experiencing a problem, we're experiencing it together. We can laugh about it. Later we know we'll tell stories about it and how bad it was. Maybe it's because we're together. I don't know. Or maybe maybe it's because a vacation has like a start and a finish. And so when I think about the problem, I can kind of view it in context of the entire vacation. But when I have a problem in my regular life, which doesn't feel like it has a start and finish. This is like another problem. There's always problems. But in a vacation, it's like, well, it's one problem, but we have a vacation we're on, right? So here's the deal. Following Jesus, I think it's like a vacation, still has problems, okay? But there's something. Again, you're not, this is not biblical teaching. Not at all. He's created his own theology based upon his theories. Why? Because the Bible doesn't teach any of this. And so 
he can't turn to God's word to substantiate or validate his theology. So he instead has to, well, come up with an analogous way of teaching his theology, and he's cut off from going to the Bible because the Bible would contradict him. And so he's just cutting his own theology, whole cloth, theoretically from his life experiences, namely his vacation. This is not how theology is done. He's cut himself off from the objective word of God, and he's flat out contradicted many times in this so-called sermon. Then different about the problems and the boring moments. There's something different. I've just found that after I started following Jesus, the problems I have feel different. I talk about them different. I laugh about them with people, and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because I have a sense of purpose now. I didn't used to. And so, yes, the the problems are annoying because they interrupt my purpose, my mission, but I just get back to my purpose. And so it's like, well, this stinks, but I've got something to get back to. Before, it was like, when I had a problem, it's just like, this is life. This is my life. It's a problem. Well, now it's not. It's like, problems interrupt my purpose. I got a purpose. Or maybe it's because when you start following Jesus, you get like a family. Like like you get these people who start to do life with you. And and so it's like, yeah, we have problems, but we can talk about it. We can share the problems. We can laugh about the problems and maybe. Or maybe it's because since I started following Jesus, I realized. Well, he's trying to come up with an explanation here. Well, maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's none of them because this isn't taught in the Bible. I realized, man, life has like this start and this finish And then there's uh, something way better after. There's like eternity of of good. And and so when I go through a problem, it used to be, it felt like it was everything. It was just like, I got obsessed with my problem. Like, this is life. It's everything. But now it's like, you know what? It's not everything. Well, like life has a a start and it has a finish. And then I've got eternity. And this this problem isn't that big when I I look at it in in context. I don't know. I'm not sure why. Uh, but, But I do know. There's something very different about the boring parts and the, and the problems that you experience when you're following Jesus. So that's my theory. My, my theory, for sure, Jesus is calling you to follow him. My theory is that when you start thinking, well, what does that look like? It looks a lot like going on a lifelong vacation. The word verve, uh, our name of our church, it means um, passionate, enthusiastic life. And so we could, I guess we could say, it's like going on a lifelong vervecation. Jesus offers you life. And that life that he offers you might look a lot like a vacation, that, that it's this life that, um, that is, gives you the sense of expectancy and hope for the future. And, and it pulls you out of your same old routine because you're on a journey now and you get an adventure. And yeah, there are still boring parts and there are still problems, but there's something critically different about them and your ability to handle them. And you just have the sense of peace even when you're in the junk. I don't know, but I do know this. I know that Jesus is calling you to follow him. Like if you met Jesus, he would not come up to you and say, hey, I'm Jesus, believe in me. And yet that's exactly what the biblical text says. It's not what he would do. And if you say, I do believe in him, he'd say, "That's, that's not what I asked. He would not really. What Jesus are you referring to? You got any passages for that? I come up to you and say, hey, would you put your faith in me? You might say, I have put my faith in him. It's not what he asked. If Jesus met you, just like everybody he met with when he lived here on earth, what he would say is, hey, I'm Jesus, 
follow me. And I just wonder if maybe some of you uh, are stuck in that same old, same old. And if you were real honest today, you'd say, it's not funny. It's not funny. Like, like my life, it is. It's the same old, same old every day. And I have no, no hope of ever escaping from it. This is what I'm stuck in. And I want out, but I don't know what out looks like. I don't know what it is. And, and I just, I'm just stuck. Like I've got all these problems and all this stuff, and I just keep doing the same thing over and over. I'm stuck. And Jesus is like, yeah, come follow me. And I will rip you out of that routine, and I will give you an adventure. And who knows what would happen? Who knows the plans and the future that God has for you? But Jesus is calling you to follow him to that. And man, our church is all about that. Our church is all about trying to figure out what does it look like? What does it look like to have a relationship with God? What does it look like to... Okay, I'd like to provide some verses that, um, well, contradict this theoretical theology of Vince Antonucci's regarding following versus believing. Acts chapter 16, verse 30, the story of the Philippian jailer says this, Then he brought them out, that's Paul and Silas, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 is where we start. But now a righteousness, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 4 Verse 13 begins by saying, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith or belief. No distrust, verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans chapter 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess... With your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of, the, of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach 
to save those who believe. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Well, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 1 Peter 2.7 So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock and offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as yet as they were destined to. 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So, um... Yeah, uh, he didn't provide any verses that says, Jesus, what did he say? Jesus says uh, it's not enough to believe you you got to follow him. Yet he didn't go to a single verse, and yet I I was able to basically take Vince Antonucci's theoretical theology and mop it up after completely decimating and defeating it with God's word. This guy is preaching a false gospel. He is sending people to hell. To follow Jesus. What does it look like to love God, love people, and turn the world upside down? And, and if you have uh, questions about that, maybe you're someone who's, who's your whole life, you're like, I believe, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. And maybe today you're realizing, I believe, but I don't follow. I'm a believer, but I'm not a follower. And that's why I'm stuck. That's why I'm stuck in the same old, same old. That's, that's why I don't have an adventure. Well, if that's you, uh, man, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to answer questions you have. I, we can get together. He'd like to meet you. He'd like to introduce you to the adventures uh, deliverer, Jesus. Apparently, he's like, you know, Greg Bears or somebody like that. You know, who's those adventure guys? Yeah, Jesus will take you on the adventure of a lifetime. Yeah, it's not the biblical Jesus, but I mean, their Jesus sounds like a really cool guy. It'd be fun to go rock climbing with if that's your, you know, thing. Somewhere else we get together out in the lobby. There's people at the Velcro bar who'd love to talk to you. They can answer your questions and just kind of walk the journey, help you figure out what's, what's your next step. So uh, let's, let's pray. And- no, 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 let's not pray. I'm going to let you pray. Um, sorry. Uh, yeah, if folks, if you know anybody who uh, has attended this so-called church in uh, Las Vegas, um, yeah, their next step, if you really want to help them out, you need to help them. Their next step needs to be to step out the door and never to let their shadow fall on the door of uh, of Vince Antonucci's so-called church ever again. He's preaching a false gospel, false Jesus, and a theoretical theology. Apparently, he's he his theology is far more truthful and 
carries more weight than the theology revealed clearly in God's Word. Because, well, of course, Vince has uh, taken this opportunity, you know, to preach his theoretical theology and absolutely straight up contradict what the Bible so clearly teaches. That's the behavior of somebody who's the tool of Satan, somebody who is a cult leader, somebody who is a wolf, who is devouring God's sheep rather than shepherding them. That What you just heard, that ain't the truth. What you heard was just a pack of flat-out lies. And, of course, he so arrogantly believes his theoretical theology to be true, so much so that that's what he preached from his so-called pulpit just a couple of days ago there in Las Vegas. Yeah, if, if that doesn't demonstrate the uh, the dangers that currently exist in the in the church today, I don't know what does. I mean, that was not biblical preaching. That was the exact, exact 180 degrees opposite of what a pastor is called to do and called to preach. All right, we're up on our, well, we're, we're at the end of the program. I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with us financially, we truly could use your help. Uh, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you sign up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you click on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all your sins. Believe it. Amen. Amen.